you're thinking he only did one song. Does that mean he's going to preach the rest of the time? Yes. I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's going to be that kind of Sunday. (laughs) Oh, good afternoon, church. What a joy to be together. I am stoked for today. We're going to do something a little different. And the reason is simple. It's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the kind of Sunday that's great for a preacher like me because the text is assigned and the text is easy. Today, we're going to talk about the triumphant victory of our King. We're going to talk about one of the most simple aspects of the gospel, which is that we worship the risen Lord, the King Jesus, who is victorious. Now listen, if you are like me and you are a church brat, it's really easy for that truth to become so normative that like we wouldn't say this, right? Like you wouldn't say this in GC, but you know like in your heart of hearts this is true. It's easy for that kind of truth to become so normative that it, that it just loses some of its snap. It loses some of its spark. It loses some of its fire. But I love days like Palm Sunday because they get, they get to remind us of just the most basic truths of the gospel, the most basic celebrate, celebratory joy of the gospel, which is that our king is victorious. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm in a place today where I just, I just want to be brought back into the joy of that proclamation. It's, e- it's easy to just lose that in, in the busyness of this life. But I want, to be, I want to get back to that joy, the joy of our salvation today. And so we're going to jump into that text. We're gonna, I'm going to say as little about it as I can get away with saying, and we're going to spend some time just worshiping our Jesus today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I think Palm Sunday is one of the per, it's like it's perfect gift to kind of move us from some of the the reflective or more, more, more somber aspects of Lent into the joy of Easter. You know, I, I, I didn't grow up doing a lot of church calendar stuff. This is something I've, I've kind of found a little bit more in, in, in the maturity of my faith or as an adult. And, and, and having this season of self-reflection and, and, and spending several weeks reflecting on the reality of sin and the necessity of Jesus to, to, to come and pay the price for my sin is, is really powerful, but it can also, it's also just like, it's kind of bleak, right? From dust you are and to dust you shall return. Like you, you bring nothing to the table. And, and there's truth to that and importance to that reflection, but, but it seems like kind of a 180 to go from that straight to like the joy and pastels of Easter Sunday, Right? I think Palm Sunday gives us this beautiful transition that it reminds us that on on Easter Sunday we are celebrating our King, our King who is victorious. In Luke chapter 19, I'm going to start in verse 28, and we read this. And when he had said these things, these things being like the five paragraphs prior to this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, when, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. 
So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, uh, why are you untying that colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they're throwing their cloaks on the colt. They sat Jesus on it and he rode along and they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for today. Thank you for a new day with the sun that rises and breath in our lungs and the gift of life and the gift of coming together with brothers and sisters to worship you, to celebrate you. God, you are so good to us. You're so good to us. God, I confess to you that you're so good to us. You're so good to me that it's, it's sometimes easy for me to begin to flip the script and to think that somehow this thing revolves around me but it's about you. And your goodness is a reflection of how much it's about you. It's a reflection of your glory, your love, your holiness. God, this morning, as we take a few minutes to to consider your word, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our discipler, that you would be our teacher, that you would illuminate the word to us, that you would convict us, and you would light afresh the passion of our souls, and that we would leave this place today having spent our afternoon with you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do today. I just want to really just kind of sit in this text. It's probably at least, at least partially familiar to most of us. The, the passion story, what happens in this week leading up to Easter is, is for the most part pretty well known. This is story represents an amazing foretaste of heaven and eternity. It's, it's a beautiful description of the power and the invitation of the gospel. It's a bold declaration of the kingship of Jesus that's worth shouting about and worth celebrating. And it's also a stark warning worth our consideration. I'd love for us to just look at this narrative and allow ourselves to just try and kind of experience every aspect of this text today. I'm praying that we're, we're challenged to examine our posture toward our King. I hope we, we look forward to eternity in His kingdom. I hope it awakens our hearts afresh to the invitation of the gospel. But, but ultimately, as we head into Holy Week and prepare our hearts for Easter Sunday, I hope that today helps us slow down enough to remember that we are not the kings of this world. We are not the king of our own lives. We have a good king, and he is worth celebrating, and he is worth worshiping. Amen? So jump into this story with me. This this text represents a culmination of a whole section of Luke. You see, 
Jesus spent almost the entirety of his ministry in the northern parts of Judea. He, he traveled among these smaller and mid-sized villages and cities around the Sea of Galilee and, and kind of spread out from there. But, but the majority of his time was kind of geographically spent there during his three-year ministry. But in, in Luke chapter 9... Luke tells us about, about a change that happens in the way Jesus is engaging his followers and engaging the world. See, he takes his closest friends away from the crowds, away from the city, away from the ministry, and they go up on a mountain, and God supernaturally reveals Jesus as he truly is to his closest friends. And in this text called the Transfiguration, Jesus is Full divinity is put on display. It's this mirror of Isaiah 6 in the throne room of God as his closest friends see him as he truly is, the sovereign God of the universe. It is a wild scene. And by the way, Peter's reaction is about as dumb as it would be for any of us if we were hanging out with our friend and all of a sudden we were hanging out with the God of the universe. He goes, we should put up tents. This is cool. The moment of revelation marks a transition in Jesus' ministry. You see, immediately after this, Jesus is revealed as he truly is. He's been, he's been dancing around this idea of his messiahship and his mission here on earth. But every time he's revealed a little bit, he, he quiets people and tells them not to share. And he tries to kind of keep it under wraps. But, but from this moment on, everything's on display. And Jesus essentially owns it and says, yes, I am the Messiah. What you saw was real. This thing's going down. Oh, and by the way, you've got the whole Messiah thing completely wrong. I'm not about to raise up an army and go conquer Rome, as the Jewish people thought. He goes, actually, we're going to head to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed and murdered. And Rome's going to brutally kill me, and then I'll rise from the dead. And they all look at him with just these blank stares of, what are you talking about? And in Luke 9.51, it says this, When the days drew near for him, him being Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And for the next 10 chapters of Luke, we follow Jesus on this final journey as he marches toward this city and marches toward the cross, not allowing anything to deter him away from it. And there's this totally different posture to Jesus in this section of the book. If you read through the first 10 chapters of Luke, he's He's kind and he's gracious and he's kind of coy when people question him and he kind of dances around. But from Luke 9 on, he goes, nope, this is what it is and this is what we're doing. Come on. If you want to come, let's go. God's doing something. Let's move. And three different times he tells his followers exactly what's going down. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. It's going to be brutal. It's not what you expect. I am the Messiah. Trust me, in three days, I'll rise from the dead. And each time they go, what are you talking about? But, but, they don't leave him. Instead, this kind of froths Jesus' followers up into a tizzy. 
You see, they've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They, 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 they've seen him revealed, right? His three closest friends. They are confident that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they are following him to Jerusalem. And each time he says, this is not going to go down the way you think it will. They all go, yeah, sure, sure. And they just keep following him. And, and you can feel this, this pressure building over these 10 chapters as more and more people get excited about who Jesus is and the, the implications of the Messiah finally coming to Israel, finally coming to free God's people. And the whole time he's like, A, yes, you're right, I am the Messiah. B, you've got it wrong. I'm not going to do what you think I'm going to do. And that pressure comes to a head in this text in Luke 19. You see, these people have no understanding. They have no way of comprehending a suffering Messiah who is rejected and killed. But they've seen the miracles and they know he's the Messiah. And so they follow. Jesus is strangely alone in this section of his ministry. At the time when he is the most popular and the most people are around him, and his, and his followers are the most dedicated to what he's doing, Luke shows us the isolation of Jesus. As they're with him, but they don't, they don't get him. And then, as we get to this scene, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He's within a couple hours' walk of the city, and he starts to tell this parable, a parable about a king who has traveled around and then returns to his kingdom and his people. Some of them have been faithful and loyal, and some of them have been lazy and unfaithful. And this king returns in all of his power and all of his authority, and specifically in his judgment. And in this parable, the faithful are blessed and the faithless are cast out. This is the parable of the ten minas or the parable of the ten talents. It's recorded in three of the four Gospels. It's, it's, it's the section of red text immediately before what we just read. Jesus tells this story about a king who's been gone and he's been trusting his people to take care of his stuff and then the king returns and judges how faithful they've been. And then our text says, and when he had said these things, he went up to Jerusalem. Whew. That's heavy. Immediately after giving this parable about the returning, judging king, Jesus approaches Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem, the God of Israel, approaches Israel. And he's ready to bear judgment. Now, our text gives us this, this familiar but but if, if we're honest, like familiar for church brats, right? Like I grew up in the Palm Sunday and they gave us the palm branches and we pull all the leaves off and whip each other when our parents weren't looking like that kind of deal. This is familiar to us if we're church brats seen that if we think about it for a moment, it's a strange story. Jesus tells his followers to go get a colt, a young unridden donkey, and bring it for him to, to ride into Jerusalem. And in this strange scene of Jesus' foreknowledge, he predicts the location and reaction of the cult's owners. But it all comes together 
in this, this scene of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem as crowds praise him and honor him as a king. There's a couple things to note here. I think the first thing worth pointing out here is this weird bit about Jesus' foreknowledge. I don't know about you guys. I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I think about weird stuff with text sometimes. But I've often wondered why this is the moment Jesus chooses to give a future prediction. It just seems like a, like a weird one where he's like, oh, hey, by the way, there's a donkey waiting for me. The owners are going to question you, but they'll just give it to you. Don't worry about it. it it's, it's, it's kind of a strange scene, but I actually think it's important. It reminds us of something about this scene, and that is this. Jesus is fully aware of what is going on right now. See, Jesus has been setting this thing up. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem for the last 10 chapters. This is his plan coming together. He knows fully what Jerusalem holds for him. He's not being swept along in the emotion and passion of a crowd or something. This, what we're seeing, what we're reading, this is Jesus' plan. His face is set toward Jerusalem, and he is walking doggedly toward the cross. The second thing to note here is how loaded the imagery is. We could do a whole sermon series, or at least a whole lot longer of a sermon, about the beauty of the integrated imagery in this part of the story. Everything from the palm branches to the things, the psalms they're quoting, to the things they're shouting, to the cloaks being laid out, to the cult, everything going on here is this powerful, loaded imagery about the Messiah, about Israel, about the king. And we need look no farther than to how the religious leaders respond to this. Notice they rebuke Jesus for this scene. They tell him to tell his followers to stop. The reason is simple, but but it's easy to miss for us. Everything that happens here is so loaded with messianic and with kingly imagery that they're worried about this scene. Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 was widely accepted at this point in history as a messianic prophecy, right? And it speaks, if you go and look at it, of, of the Messiah arriving at Jerusalem seated on a colt. Now, this in and of itself was building upon existing imagery within Jewish culture, specifically about the king of Israel riding into the city upon a donkey after a victory of the king choosing to ride a donkey instead of a war horse, like speaking to their victory, speaking to the peace that the city was now under. The people laying out garments, waving palm branches, this is all hearkening back to the ancient Israelite inaugurations of God's anointed kings. God's anointed kings is where we get the language of Messiah. Everyone present in this scene is very bluntly calling Jesus the Messiah and the rightful King of Israel. It is no wonder that the religious leaders got upset This is the kind of thing in a conquered country that gets people killed. Talk of kings gets Rome involved. And and BTW, really quick, look at what charge was actually formally brought against Jesus when they finally killed him. What What did Pilate put on the sign on the cross? Behold, the king of the Jews. There's no mistaking what Jesus is doing In this procession, he is claiming his Messiah kingship over Zion and his authority over the people of God. And the religious leaders, 
They don't want the trouble. (laughs) So they tell Jesus to tone it down. And I love this. Jesus' response in the midst of all this celebration, when the religious leaders come to him and say, bro, you, this is bad. Rebuke them. Shut this thing down. He essentially says, look, guys, when God shows up to Jerusalem, praise happens. I don't know what you want me to do about it. If they stop, the rocks are going to sing. When God shows up to Zion, the result is praise. You guys can amen that part. <laughs> This is intense. It's it's powerful. It's stark imagery for us to sit with. Beloved, Jesus is the king. He has the power, and we are reading, we're seeing him claiming his victory. Even as he knows that he's walking into his coming betrayal and suffering and death, he is claiming that as victory walking into the city under a banner of peace and victory, knowing full well the rejection and suffering and pain and death he is about to experience. This is why we celebrate Easter. This is why this part of the church calendar, why this part of the gospel story is so vitally important. Beloved, Jesus is our king and his plan and his death and his victory. They are enough. Way back in December, we do this every year, right? We go through Advent and at some point we always mention that sweet little baby Jesus was born to die for our sins. Beloved, this is so true. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. This is not an accident. This is the plan. And when the king shows up as the king in judgment, as the king in victory, as the king in peace, when he showed up in power in his own plan, it was as good as a victory. You know, later in his letter to the Philippian church, Paul has this section where he's, he's talking about the church needing to, to kind of conform their minds into unity. And he says they need to have the same mind, the same heart of Jesus. And then he, he spills out this amazing hymn where he describes the heart and mind of Jesus that, that we all should have. It's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. I'm going to read this to you. This is Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. It says this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus hear this church, every, every, every knee should bow. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Aside from being a beautiful and rich Christology, it's just one of those verses you can't read and not just get excited, right? This text reminds us of two insanely important things. First, the brutal, unjust death and resurrection of Jesus was God's plan from the very beginning. 
It reinforces the same idea. This is the plan. Jesus sets this up on purpose. And second, it tells us that this beautiful story, that Palm Sunday, that this triumphant entry, this is just the appetizer. This is just the precursor. Beloved, our king will come again. And when he returns, it won't be a small group of people who believed he was Messiah, but they didn't really understand it. It won't be a small group of people crying out Hosanna, but not really knowing what they mean by that. The text tells us that when Jesus returns, everyone and everything will bow down to the king. Those who are his and those who are not. He will be fully revealed as the true king of the universe, not just the king of Israel, but the king of reality. And everything on heaven and on earth will bow the knee and confess the lordship of Jesus. Come on, church. Our text today is just the appetizer. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, it will be wild. C.S. Lewis says that, that that moment will be the greatest conceivable moment for those of us in Christ and the most conceivably terrifying moment for those who aren't. Because in that moment, when the king returns, everyone will know who he is. And the sides will have already been chosen. You see, the king is coming, and he's coming in victory and in judgment, just like he did in Jerusalem all those years ago. And the reason for this is as insanely simple as it is insanely beautiful. That is this, church. Jesus' work was sufficient. Our Lord's plan worked. He set his face towards Jerusalem, and when he got there, he took care of business. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension are sufficient to actually pay the penalty of sin, to actually defeat the curse of death. Jesus did what he set out to accomplish. And when he comes back, it won't be a foretaste of victory. It won't be an appetizer. It will be the complete embodiment of his royal kingship over all reality. In Revelation 7, in the midst of his vision from the Lord, John saw a little bit of Jesus' return. You can read this in Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude. No one could number them. They, they came from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all languages, and they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might, all of these things to our God, our King, forever and ever. Amen. Woo! That's where we're headed. That's, that's what this text points us to. Jesus will return. And there's going to be another Palm Sunday. And there won't be any kids in the background ripping the leaves off and whipping each other at this one. I mean, they might, but that might be later. Guys, this one will be perfect. 
It'll be complete. Those who've rejected Jesus will get their ultimate wish. But those who are in Christ, they'll be resurrected to a perfect eternity that He won for us on the cross. Come on. There is a Palm Sunday that is coming, and it's going to be amazing. So what do we do with a text like this? Well, first and plainly, if you're in this space and you're not in Christ, I hope this text gives you pause. The return of the king will not be good news for those who have rejected Christ. It will be terrifying. I don't say that to be the fire and brimstone pastor who's trying to scare you into heaven. I say that out of love, out of care. Because he will come back. And he is a perfect and just judge. And he will make all things right. And every sin and every wrong and every injustice from all of eternity will be accounted for on that day. Hope that text hope that thought is as sobering for you as it is for me, because guys, i got a lot of sins I've added to that ledger. Hope it gives you pause. Hope it draws you to the reality of the, the actual awesome authority of our King and our Judge who will come to judge the living and the dead. But praise be to God, that day does not have to be terrifying. Because Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and he accomplished what he set out to accomplish so that you and I can be washed clean in the blood of Christ. And our sins can be wiped away and they can be paid for and they can be atoned and you can wait for his coming with eager anticipation knowing that he will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the pleasure of your master. That he actually desires to wash you clean. The day of judgment would be a day of celebration, of joy, the culmination of your following after him. So I hope a text like Palm Sunday gives some of us pause to sit and soberly reflect on where we stand with Christ. Because the King is coming. But... For those of us who are in Christ in this space, this text points us to the amazing beauty of our King, of our Savior. Beloved of Jesus, your King is coming. Your Lord will return and He brings with Himself victory and peace and life and eternity. When we get to eagerly anticipate his return, we get to wait and worship and eagerly expect as those who have been washed and who receive the eternal gift of his presence. Come on. So here's what I'd like to do. Whew. I got a lot and bothering. I'm sorry. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to celebrate that today. I don't know if you guys have been lenting like I've been lenting. And if you haven't, that's fine. That's all good. Welcome to my weirdness, right? But I, I just, I need this today. I, I want to take a few minutes and be brought back to the joy of our coming King. The beauty of His victory, the power of His love on our behalf. 
which is why we front-loaded the sermon today, because I wanted to come up here and just yell at you about how good Jesus was for a minute. (laughs) So that we can take a few minutes and celebrate his gift on our behalf. So I'm going to flip the way we do our gathering around today. I already did, right? I'm in the sermon. But I'm going to ask you guys, take a minute, reflect and pray with me. We're going to take communion in just a second if the band wants to come up. And the reason we're going to take communion before we do our whole worship set is I want us to take of the elements and reflect on the accomplished work of our King who set his face towards Jerusalem and who accomplished what he set out to accomplish. So if you'd like to celebrate that, to respond in that way today, I'd invite you to take some elements We have some in the back. I actually forgot to bring any up here with me. Can I snag that from you? (laughs) Somebody give one to Andrew. I just took his. (laughs) I want us to start here today. Our Lord, our King, in His wisdom, in His strength, in His holiness, set his face toward Jerusalem, who who pushed through the coming suffering, who the text says, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He, He rebuked and set aside the shame and the embarrassment and the pain and the suffering and said, this is what I've come here for. To kill death. To wash sins clean. And beloved, that plan worked. And you and I have life and freedom and salvation. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it with his friends and he said, this is my body broken for you. Beloved, take and eat. And when he had passed the cup, he said, take this and drink. This is my blood poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant. Beloved, take and drink deep of the covenant of grace. God, you're so good to us. I am... I am astounded at your faithfulness to us. I am astounded at the the love and the endurance and and, and the determination that you brought to this gospel. You endured that for us. God, you're so good. Thank you that your work is sufficient, but God, more than that, praise you because your work is sufficient. Because you are enough. You conquered what we couldn't conquer. You defeated what we couldn't defeat. You washed clean what we couldn't get away from. You are truly our king. And such a good king you are. 
when the Jewish folk would head up to Jerusalem for Passover, they had a set of songs they would sing as they made their way up. One of those psalms is some of what these people quote to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. I want to read this to you. Open up to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This, this, this is the gate of the Lord and the righteous get to enter through it. Thank you that you have answered me, that you have become my salvation, that the the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous for us to look at. This is the day that the Lord has made. So we rejoice and we are glad. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Because blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you in the house of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Beloved, Jesus came in the name of the Lord. And he marched into Jerusalem. And he set about his work. And he accomplished it. And because of that, you and I have life. So we say, Hosanna. Be lifted up. That's what that means. Be lifted up. Praise to you. Beloved, let's take a few minutes and let's celebrate our good King. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's shout. Let's clap. God is good.